I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. Where I see, you know, the problem with the people arguing that negotiations aren't going to work, that you can't negotiate with a state like Russia, is they're kind of offering this no-negotiation fantasy, right? That we can, if we just back Ukraine enough, achieve some kind of victory that doesn't actually require negotiation. And that's not how wars end. In the past few years, Emma Ashford has consistently offered some of the most trenchant and thoughtful criticism of U.S. foreign policy and the debate that shapes it. She is now a senior fellow at the Stimson Center. In her essays in foreign affairs and elsewhere, she's warned about the dangers of groupthink. She's made the case for restraint, for accepting the limits of what U.S. power can achieve. And since the start of the war in Ukraine, she's warned of the dangers of escalation, which she argues only rise as the war goes on. Emma Ashford, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me today. So, Emma, you've established yourself as, I think, one of the kind of essential critics of the mainstream of American foreign policy debate and, you know, through writing and speaking in a lot of venues, including the slew of pieces you've done for foreign affairs over the last few years. So I want to start quite broad and try to get you to kind of draw out the overarching critique of the United States. What do you see as the kind of flaw in the way we talk about foreign policy issues that underlies a lot of your critique or dissatisfaction with how policy plays out in these areas? I think my essential critique of US foreign policy boils down to the idea that it is not enough to simply think about the mistakes of the war on terror as something that is not a bigger problem, right? It's not enough to look back at the last 20 years and say, you know, we made a mistake. We made a mistake in invading Iraq. We made a mistake in the way we handled Afghanistan. And that's fine. And US foreign policy can just sort of get back on track. Now we've moved on. And the reason I say that is because I think we're in a fundamentally shifting era of global politics. And I think people increasingly acknowledge this. We saw it in the last national security strategy from the last administration. And, you know, my feeling or my read of the international situation is that as we shift from this period of unipolarity, as the political scientists put it, from America being the most powerful state, treating the whole world as its sphere of influence. And we're shifting more into an era that's going to look something more like multipolarity, right? Lots of different states jockeying in different regions, states that are capable of pushing back against the US, that America is really overleveraged, that we are trying to do too much, and that it's going to end up being sort of problematic for us if we keep trying to run with these policies that we had during that post-Cold War period where we basically had the preponderance of power. And I guess I'll add one final thing, which is I also think, you know, we don't take questions of political economy and kind of latent power seriously enough. You know, I think a lot of the discourse in Washington is about military power. And in that space, America is still very much on top. But when you start to talk about comparative economics, you know, there's areas like energy where we are doing better. But then there's areas like finance or trade where America's not doing as well as it used to. And I think we don't take seriously enough the role that those political economy questions play in great power politics. A lot to unpack there, but let's start with some of that history. I mean, I think there is a fair amount of consensus in our foreign policy debate right now about the failures of the last, say, you know, three decades of American foreign policy, the post-Cold War foreign policy. You get lots of different kinds of critiques. So there are people who are 
you know, on the more hawkish end of the spectrum who would criticize that era of policy for not, you know, focusing enough on China and Russia earlier on. There are, you know, others who would focus on a different set of issues. You know, it's easy to, for, I think, for people to agree that Iraq was a mistake. What do you see as the other failures of that period or the other missed opportunities of that period? Well, so I think another failure that people in Washington are kind of starting to reckon with is the notion that we, through our engagement in the 1990s and the 2000s, we actually helped to abet the rise of China, which is now our, our major competitor. And that had good points, right? It lifted millions of people out of poverty, but it also brought us to the situation we're in today where, you know, the US in Asia is facing an increasingly difficult geopolitical landscape. So I think in general, US foreign policy has been too expansive, too focused on trying to control everything, you know, rather than sort of understanding that perhaps sometimes things happen in places that aren't core to US interests. And I guess if I could just highlight sort of the one biggest problem that I think US foreign policy has, it is that it has been fundamentally transformative, right? We've had these visions of ways that we can change the world. Economic development will make China into a responsible stakeholder. The war on terror will be civilizational and we will, you know, help to remove the risk of terror forever. We will overthrow dictators in the Middle East and democracy will flourish. These are all visions of ways in which America reshapes the world. And I do think we should be having slightly more modest goals when we talk about world politics, thinking about American interests, thinking about our economy, thinking about the American people, that's been subsumed under this very transformative approach. You wrote a wonderful essay for the magazine about a year ago, which was called Strategies of Restraint, and was about, you know, what seemed like a good moment for the restraint school of foreign policy debate. We can talk about whether that moment has passed. But, you know, when you reflect back on the previous period, why do you think restrainers had a relatively hard time getting traction in foreign policy debates through that period? You know, I think some of the failure of restraint is tied up in the fact that Americans culturally were just not set up to accept something that's called restraint as good. And so I think, you know, during the period, again, the 1990s, the 2000s, America has no major competitors. The economy is mostly humming along quite well. You know, the Soviet Union is gone. We're not looking at resurgent China yet. It's pretty easy for Americans to just gloss past questions of relative power and what we should do with our military and whether we can bear the costs of certain kinds of foreign policy. And so I think it was very hard for those arguments to get traction. You know, you look at the run-up to the debate over the run-up to the Iraq war, you know, you see a lot of prominent realists in the United States arguing against it, saying, you know, this is going to be a disaster for all the reasons that it did turn out to be a disaster. But nobody was really willing to listen to them because I think there was this mindset that, you know, America really could do anything in that period. And as you say, you know, over the last maybe five years or so, it became an easier sell to talk about restraining U.S. power. The financial crisis, the war on terror's failures, everybody, I think the public, I think policymakers started to accept that maybe we had to make some changes. And so it became easier to make those arguments. So in the moment when that essay was published, it seemed, you know, as I said, like a relatively good moment for the restraint side of these debates. And, you know, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was seen as that side's argument. Having won out in policy debates, I think you could take issue with the you know specifics of the withdrawal, but I think broad agreement that that kind of strategically was the right move. 
And it seemed like that was kind of setting the tone for even Biden administration policy in many ways. And we, you know, we certainly ran pieces in foreign affairs that hailed the restraint of Biden through that period. A few months later, the war in Ukraine started. And I think this has shifted debate quite a bit. So I mean, how do you think the restraint side of this debate is doing in the Ukraine context? Do you see a, a change in the terms of this debate or is it fundamentally where it was a year ago? Yeah. And it's, I think, a salutary lesson. You should never hail the victory of any kind of moment because it will almost immediately receive backlash. You know, I think we have seen both of the last two administrations adopt some elements of a more restrained or more realist foreign policy, right? Not consistently in either administration, matched with different rhetoric under Trump and different rhetoric under Biden. But, you know, from things like the withdrawal in Afghanistan to, you know, Trump talking about burden sharing in in Europe, that mantle has been picked up to some extent by Biden. Policymakers have adopted some of these terms. But where it does get really interesting, as you say, is, you know, since I think the start of the war in Ukraine, there's been somewhat of a backlash to this idea. And I think it's because in the context of Ukraine, we see these notions of restraint come into conflict with the more transformative, global, idealistic approach that had governed US foreign policy over the last three decades. And these two ideas come into conflict quite strongly, right? Restrainers or realists arguing that, you know, maybe we should support Ukraine, but we have to be worried about escalation. This is a great power conflict. We have to worry about what Russia is doing. And then more idealist approach is saying, right, but, you know, Ukraine is in a war for its life. You know, Ukrainians are fighting for a just cause. We have to support them all the way. And again, I think you're back in that situation where restraint even though it is probably the more pragmatic, rational approach here, and even though it's pretty much what the Biden administration is actually doing, it's a harder sell rhetorically than it was you know, when talking about failures in the Middle East. One thing that seems striking about your work is that you are, forgive me if I'm mischaracterizing you here, but you are both a realist and a restrainer in my understanding of your uh, assumptions. Is that fair to say? Yes and no. Restraint can be a couple of things. You know, it's a grand strategy, very specific, a book by Barry Posen, very specific prescriptions for how America should act in the world. I'm not a restrainer in that sense. But there's this like broader political coalition of people pushing for more restrained US foreign policy. And I definitely think I fall in that camp. And I think, you know, there's some confusion between the two. And I think that the political coalition is a much broader tent than a lot of people give it credit for. I mean, I think you and a number of other, I think people kind of the younger side of this debate tend to, I think, engage in the policy debate in a much more active way than perhaps some of the older generation of scholars. And you have certainly done that in the Ukraine context. You wrote a piece for foreign affairs early on, both warning about the risks of escalation in the war, but also praising the Biden administration for what you called a relatively careful and judicious approach to arming Ukraine. A lot has changed on the battlefield since you wrote that about six months ago. Do you still find the administration's approach relatively restrained? And how do you see the escalation risks now? I certainly think the Biden administration has made some mistakes, right, in how they've handled this war. You know, I would not have framed this in a democracy versus autocracy framing. I think, you know, they've been perhaps a little too willing to 
follow the Europeans down some extremely draconian economic sanctions roads that I think, you know, the big spike in energy prices that we saw in the spring was partly the result of that. But in general, yeah, I still believe that the Biden administration has taken a fairly judicious approach to the war in Ukraine. We are arming the Ukrainians. We are funding them. But we're not sending U.S. troops. We're not doing a no-fly zone. We're not sending some of the most advanced weapons that could cause escalation. And so I think the Biden administration has been quite cautious. Where I do start to worry is, you know, when we get into this question of escalation risks. And I think over the summer, you know, we were in this sort of second phase of the war, very grinding, attritional, neither side making big gains. I think the escalation risks were quite low during that period. We sort of knew by then that the Russians would not escalate if we continued the flow of arms into Ukraine. But that's not the condition that we're in right now. That's not the conflict we're seeing today. Now we have seen a massive Russian escalation in the last week. We've seen, you know, Russia announced mobilization. They just annexed territories of Ukraine legally into Russia. There's nuclear saber rattling. There's talk about pipelines, which, you know, I don't think we know enough about yet to really sort of talk about in depth. But the Russians have escalated substantially. They're signaling, I think, very clearly that they're willing to bear substantial political costs to continue this war. And I don't think the administration has a clear vision for how the war ends at this point. And so that is where, you know, I do think they've done a good job to this point, but I think they need to be firmer about thinking, you know, maybe there are no negotiation possibilities now, but when might we see those possibilities and what are we going to do when they arise? That seems like a limitation of both sides of this debate from where I said, at least that you have a group of people who are very attuned to the escalation risks and the costs of a long war and all of the you know, human suffering on the ground, the economic costs, the risks that will accumulate over time. You also then have a school of people who are very attuned to the limitations of negotiations and can point out why it seems relatively far-fetched to come up with some kind of diplomatic compromise here. You know, I'm not sure we've heard a kind of compelling story of how this ends from either side. Do you think that's unfair? Do you see a kind of path to a diplomatic outcome that you think is not getting adequate attention in the policy process now? It's obviously a little hard to know exactly what is happening through secret channels, but it certainly doesn't seem to like there's a lot on the diplomatic front. There's not. And I do worry the window for negotiations is, if not closing, there are certainly not many good options in the foreseeable immediate future. I do think there have perhaps been some windows where we could have talked about at least a ceasefire. There have been signs that diplomacy isn't dead, right? The Russians and the Ukrainians agreed on this grain export deal in the Black Sea. There have been prisoner swaps that have been quite successful, high-profile prisoners in exchange for Ukrainian forces. So diplomacy is not dead. And at some point, you know, I think we will reach a point where both sides have, to some extent, rethought their war aims and lowered those aims enough that there might be a settlement there. We're not there yet, but we, I think we'll get there. And so where I see, you know, the problem with kind of the people arguing, you know, the opposite, that negotiations aren't going to work, that you can't negotiate with a state like Russia is, you know, they're kind of offering this no negotiation fantasy, right? That we can, if we just back Ukraine enough, 
achieve some kind of victory that doesn't actually require negotiation. And that's not how wars end like the vast majority of the time. It's certainly not how wars end when you're looking at a nuclear armed great power. So my concern is that you're right. I think neither side has a plausible theory of how this ends exactly right now. But at least from my point of view, I can get there eventually. I'm not sure the other side can because what they're basically talking about is absolute victory. Meaning this war will go on for a long time, but eventually there will be a willingness on both sides to come up with some kind of compromise. That is your plausible story of how this ends, whether that's in six months or two years or five years. Exactly. And what I would like to see the administration do is think a little more clearly about what the parameters that, you know, what do we want to see in that deal? What is important to us? What's important to Ukraine? Where do those positions diverge? You know, we should be doing the thinking about that now, because I think if we just let this continue to roll along, then best case scenario, this becomes a permanent conflict in Ukraine that sort of impoverishes everybody that can escalate at any time. And the worst case scenario, right, is that this escalates further into a broader war to nuclear use. You know, I think those risks are very real and letting the conflict roll on forever is not the best way to avoid them. Do you see more that the U.S. and its partners could be doing to head off those risks of nuclear use? We were in a situation, I think, over the summer where, you know, those escalation risks were relatively low. I think it would be helpful now to make clear for Washington in particular, to make clear to Kiev, you know, where we see those risks being highest and what we sort of will and won't support. And for example, you know, if we believe that Crimea is a red line for Russia, and I think that's a very plausible argument, then we do need to be talking with Kiev now about how does the Zelensky government avoid a situation where they're under huge popular pressure in Ukraine to escalate into Crimea. You know, we need to be having those conversations now so that we don't get there and be surprised and risk escalation. We'll be back after a short break. In the war in court, Lisa Hajar traces the fight against U.S. torture policy by lawyers who brought the war on terror into courts. Hajar clearly outlines why challenges to the torture policy had to be waged on the legal terrain and why hundreds of lawyers joined the fight. Drawing on extensive interviews with key participants, her own experiences reporting from Guantanamo, and her deep knowledge of international law and human rights, Hajar reveals how the ongoing fight against torture has had transformative effects on the legal landscape in the United States and on a global scale. Learn more about The War in Court by Lisa Hajar at ucpress.edu. People have framed the war in Ukraine or the stakes of the war in Ukraine in various ways. You mentioned democracy versus autocracy. Tim Snyder on our pages calls it a war between democracy and nihilism. I think the probably consensus view in the American foreign policy community, at least, is that this is, you know, symptomatic of what I think is widely recognized as the kind of dominant condition of this geopolitical moment, which is great power competition, right? That this is about a return to some of these dynamics that we had, you know, mostly forgotten about in the 90s and early aughts. Do you find great power competition a useful framing, a useful concept in foreign policy debate? In some ways, does reflect an acceptance of power and power realities 
in ways that were perhaps missing earlier. But, you know, there are obviously, of course, pitfalls to framing things in this way. Yeah, there really are pitfalls to using, you know, great power competition as a prescription for how the US should approach the world. Like, we will compete, we must compete. You know, that kind of language, I think, is pretty problematic. But as a description, I think great power competition fares a little better. And, you know, if I were to, you know, basically suggest a cause for the war in Ukraine and a cause for some of the tensions that we're seeing over Taiwan and elsewhere, it is the notion that America is bumping up right against the borders of other states that do have the capacity to push back and resist that and are concerned about that. So it's NATO expansion. It's not just NATO expansion, right? It's the fact that almost every state of the post-Soviet bloc has been pulling away from Russia, pulling towards Europe, and that that raises alarm bells in Moscow. It's the idea that Taiwan might make some concrete choice to shift away from China towards the West. And it's in those places, you know, geographically right next to great powers, culturally or politically important to those great powers like Ukraine, like Taiwan, that's where we're seeing the friction that can actually turn into conflict. So, I mean, I think as a description, great power competition or great power tensions does explain why we're starting to see these conflicts. There are scholars who I think would broadly call realists who look at that set of risks and look at that condition and, you know, return to some version of spheres of influence as a solution. I mean, we've run, I think, you know, John Mearsheimer says a version of that, I think. Graham Allison has written that a bit more explicitly for us. That does seem in some ways like a logical solution to the risk you describe, but it's, I think, repellent for lots of other reasons, including because it means saying to, you know, Ukrainians or people on Taiwan that they have, you know, little say over their own political future. How do you see the spheres of influence dimension of this debate? I and mean, is that inevitably part of the outcome here if great power competition is the condition we're facing? You know, I think we frame the discussion about spheres of influence wrong. I think we frame it as, you know, as you say, as this repellent concept, it's normative, it's terrible, it's the idea that we're going to sell citizens of democracies into slavery to Russia or China, something like that. But that's really not what a sphere of influence is. A sphere of influence is, I would say, more factual. It is the place where one great power basically says to another, you know, I am not willing to challenge you, right? The costs of me intervening here are too high and I am not willing to bear those costs. And so I think from that point of view, right, Ukraine is actually a very clear example of spheres of influence in practice. We're seeing Russia trying to assert control over Ukraine and put it in its sphere of influence and failing quite effectively. So that's good. But we're also seeing the US say there are limits, right? I will not intervene directly. I will arm and fund you to defend yourself, but I'm not intervening directly because the costs are too high. And America's putting limits, I think, there on its own sphere of influence. And that suggests to me a path forward, which is, yes, we do have to get back to the notion of embracing at least implicitly spheres of influence. But that doesn't mean that we can't support countries in other ways, right? So there's great work on, you know, turning Taiwan into a porcupine that makes it too costly for Beijing to intervene in. These kind of solutions that aren't direct control, direct U.S. intervention, I think, are a way to get past that moral problem. How do you see the state of the China policy debate in Washington right now? To what extent do you see it incorporating some of the lessons that you've 
helped identify from the past few decades of American foreign policy and to what extent do you see it exhibiting the same pathologies in your mind? Yeah. And I mean, I guess I should preface this by saying I'm not an Asia specialist, but you know, my general impression from talking to those who are is that there are worries, you know, not just among people that are more restrained or realist minded. There are worries from people that you might genuinely categorize as China hawks that the debate over particularly Taiwan has become performative and unhelpful, that there are Taiwan bills moving through Congress that, you know, say that we should normalize relations with Taipei, recognize them as a country, all of these things that are going to raise the risk of some kind of conflict without actually doing anything to help Taiwan defend itself. And so I think we are making similar mistakes in Asia to the mistakes that we have made in Europe. So over the last two decades, you know, we expanded NATO We refused to talk to Russia about its security concerns. And eventually we did get to a point where this came to a conflict. As late as December, we had the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, you know, out in Kiev and saying things like, you know, Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and right to choose whether it joins NATO, we will defend that absolutely. And when the rubber hit the road, we didn't right? We armed them, we funded them, but we didn't actually intervene. And I worry we're making similar mistakes in Asia, that we are going with the performative, we will support you stuff and not with the actual practical support that they need. You'd rather have us sending weapons to Taiwan that would allow it to implement the kind of porcupine strategy you referred to in the event of a a Chinese invasion, rather than Mm -hmm. the focus on kind of provocative symbolism and walking quietly, I suppose, would be another way of saying that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think more likely to be effective, both more likely to not provoke a Chinese invasion in the first place, but also more able to avoid those potential escalation risks. And so, you know, I think we have to be very strategic about these things. That doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about, you know, great powers like Russia or China. We shouldn't worry about revisionism, that they're going to become territorial aggrandizers. But we should think about ways to, at the very least, minimize potential conflict so that if and when that does happen, it's obvious why it's happening and we are better prepared. As we get towards closing, talk a bit about how you would kind of put us on a better path. You note in your recent essay that realists in their focus on prudence have tended to be better at critique than at offering concrete solutions. I think you said a version of that in your essay last year on restraint. So I want to talk a bit about how you think we can get to a better place. But as we do that, let's talk a bit about the blob, which is, I think, you know, becomes part of this discussion in many contexts. The blob is the kind of pejorative term for the foreign policy establishment and foreign affairs is certainly part of that. So I won't pretend that we're fully disinterested. But, you know, talk about the way you see policymaking debate unfolds in Washington, what the pressures and incentives that tend to reinforce some of the pathologies or shortcomings that you see have been over this period of time. I think, you know, the pathology that worries me most about the U.S. foreign policy is inertia. It's the fact that foreign policy tends to run on pretty set rails. And I think the best example of this is that even during the Trump administration, even with a president as chaotic and unpredictable and willing to just make completely out of left field decisions on foreign policy, the administration found it hard to shift 
U.S. foreign policy. We saw the same thing happen under Obama. He really struggled. He wanted to pull the U.S. out of Afghanistan. He wanted to pull out the Middle East. He really struggled to get that through. You know, you can talk about bureaucratic politics. You can talk about think tanks and funding. There's all kinds of reasons, but U.S. foreign policy has an inertia. And I worry that, you know, where that leads us is, you know, we push too far in some places like in Ukraine, like in Taiwan. In that sort of situation, I think it's difficult to have conversations about big strategic changes to U.S. foreign policy, because if you have some grand overarching grand strategy, the odds of you actually being able to implement all of it are very small. But, you know, there's a few areas where I think I would focus, you know, and I would, you know, suggest that policymakers think think about focusing on over the long term. One is burden sharing, which I think is something the United States needs to focus on a lot more heavily. And this is, you know, long been a realist hobby horse. But I mean, I think if anything, the war in Ukraine has shown us it's that when the US steps into the breach, you know, European states don't spend on their own defense. We've seen noises about it, but we've not seen any great increases in a lot of cases. European states are more than capable of fighting Russia to a standstill if they wanted. That much is obvious. And we have similar problems in a lot of regions. The US is bearing a lot of burden when there are capable partners out there that could do it. So that's one area where I think you could shift the inertia by just shifting the practicalities of defense. Just to linger on that, do you think Trump managed to do that in any way? No, I don't think he did. As with most of his policies, he was completely schizophrenic. He lectured NATO countries about burden sharing and then offered to send 2,000 troops to Poland because the Poles offered to name it Fort Trump. So as always with Trump, I think, you know, he made some of the right noises, but he didn't really make a good effort to actually implement them. The Biden team has been a little better, but even there, I think they're falling into old patterns of, you know, reinforcing the transatlantic alliance, pushing to send more equipment to Asia rather than encouraging Asian countries. So I think these patterns, the inertia really reassert themselves quite frequently. I do think we need to start thinking about spheres of influence, but in a more practical way. We need to start thinking about, you know, where are the friction points where we're most likely to see great power conflict in the future? And how can we best put ourselves in a situation where we can avoid conflict over those friction points? And I appreciate that that's a very difficult argument to have because some people will say that, you know, you basically increase deterrence so much, you increase the US presence so much that, you know, China is deterred from taking action. But I think it's much more about thinking through innovative strategies to help states defend themselves, to find ad hoc coalitions that can work together on some of these issues. And I I think just more attention, less attention to abstract principles and more attention to the practicalities of these are the friction points can be helpful. And then I guess I'll throw one more point on the table, which may come across as entirely crazy. But I think the United States has an interest in promoting the rise of multipolarity around the world. We often talk about multipolarity as if it is a bad thing because, you know, conflict is somewhat more likely in a multipolar system than it was under bipolarity or unipolarity. But I would argue that this is a way for the United States to build a world in which it's not always America that has to act 
when something goes wrong. You are much more likely to be able to build ad hoc balancing coalitions, right? The US working with India to push back against China in some places, but then maybe working with, you know, Australia to suggest that India shouldn't take other steps, right? So we are much more likely to be able to form those kind of ad hoc agreements and arrangements that benefit us in a world that is more multipolar. So encouraging Europe to turn its financial capital into military power, right? Again, I think that puts us in a much better place than simply trying to keep America as the top dog until eventually we just can't anymore. My impression, and tell me if you think this is off base, is that the debate we're having about foreign policy in this country has become much more open to these kinds of questions than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And I think some of that is a reaction to some of the failures of the years that preceded that. I think some of it's a reaction to Trump and some of the ways that he opened debate. But it seems like a healthier ecosystem than perhaps it was you know, earlier in our careers. Are you optimistic about where the state of debate is or how do you see it? Even with Ukraine and even with sort of the fact that this is a very difficult to resolve policy problem, I am more optimistic about the state of debate. I think the term blob is silly and overused, but quite genuinely in the 2000s, there was a lot of groupthink among Washington elites, right? Republican or Democrat didn't really matter. You espoused pretty much the same ideas, even if you got there through different means. And I think that is different now, right? Both political parties have quite robust contestation on questions of foreign policy, right? Progressives in the Democratic Party, these national conservatives or paleoconservatives on the right, And even in sort of the think tank or media space, it's much more common now to read differing points of view than it was before. So, you know, I am pretty hopeful, if nothing else, than because I just think that that it's much healthier to have a marketplace of ideas in which policymakers can say, hey, there are options rather than this is the only option available to me. Well, Emma, thank you for what you've done to help make that a reality in both in our pages and elsewhere. And we will look forward to uh, having you back in FA before long. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming Dresser, and Marcus Zacharia. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, and Gabrielle Sierra. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.